often touches on some similar concepts. Um, you all knowing Brother Jeff know that he was gracious and merciful and kind. and uh, He was right in saying that the Lord would take care of those things, and he certainly always does. And so I uh, just pray that he would be exalted today in these things. All right. Uh, context, Zephaniah 1.1. Um, we get a whole lot more information than we get in Obadiah. Uh, so I was already off to a, a better uh, path than Brother Brad was here. Zephaniah 1.1 tells us quite a bit. It says, The word of the Lord which came into Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. We're told that the author, Zephaniah, it's, the author is God speaking through his prophet, Zephaniah. Zephaniah means Yahweh has hidden, and we find a unique thing here for Zephaniah that's not typical uh, or hardly seen at all, not, not to this degree in any of the other prophets, is four generations of his lineage uh, given to us. Most of the prophets don't have any listed, and some have one, uh, and he has four generations. Most people say that that is because this Hezekiah or Hezekiah is King Hezekiah. We can't know that for sure. It doesn't say king, and so... Um, I tend to think that it is talking about King Hezekiah, and that's why it was listed for us. Um, But we're also told the time. We're told that it was during the reign of uh, Josiah, king of Judah. And thankfully, that reign is very well dated for us in the Bible. We have biblical history that tells us when that was and what was going on. And so how vital is that information to be able to understand what the prophet was talking about and the main points that he was declaring? You read this history in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. I know sometimes historical context can be heavy and long, and so we're going to try to get through it as, as fast as we can. Uh, that being said, again, to find the major points of the minor prophet, you have to have a, at least a little bit of understanding of what's happening pol- politically and historically within the time frame to help us to understand what he's teaching about. So... Uh, we're going to start just with the Assyrian dominance and the fall of Israel. So the world power, uh, that, was, that was for v- several hundred years at the time, was Assyria. Uh, during, the king, excuse me, during King Hezekiah's reign, that would have been Josiah's great-grandfather, uh, the Assyrians besieged Samaria. This is the capital city of the northern kingdom. I think probably most of us are familiar with the United Kingdom of Israel under David and Solomon. And then during Rehoboam, Solomon's son, they split ten kingdoms to the north, the northern kingdom, called Israel, and two to the south, called Judah. Well, uh, during Hezekiah's reign, the Assyrian world power came into Israel uh, and besieged it, and Israel fell under the power of the Assyrians, never to come back. Um, And so that took place, um, and Assyria even marched on Judah at this time, Uh, and conquered many of its cities, but God withheld uh, it from taking Jerusalem and and, and preserved it under the mostly righteous rule of Hezekiah the king. After Hezekiah, his son Manasseh reigned, and we are told that his reign was perversely wicked. Uh, It is dark. Uh, You can read about it again in Scripture. Um, Manasseh reigned for 55 years, And it was a time of deep, dark rebellion and sin against the Lord and the covenant promises that they had made with him. Some of the things that describe his reign is he built altars to pagan gods, which a lot of bad kings did, but he had the goal to do it within the temple of the Lord. Within the courts of the temple, he built 
pagan altars to pagan deities to worship within the house of God. Talks darkly about him sacrificing his own children, burning them to pagan gods. He used fortune tellers and mediums and witchcraft. It says that he shed innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. He led the nation of Judah astray to the extent that the Bible says it was worse than the pagan nations that God had delivered them from, right? When they gave them Canaan and cleared them out, these pagan nations, uh, uh, Manasseh had led Judah down a path that had made him more evil than even them. Manasseh's son was Amon. He reigned for two years only after the death of his father uh, because he was he walked down the same path of wickedness that his father did, uh, and he was assassinated by the hands of his own servant. And then we have this beautiful bright spot in the history of Judah by the boy king named Josiah. Beautiful. Spend some time there. We're, we're, we're going to talk about it a little bit because it was the time when Zephaniah was giving his prophecy, the, the reign of Josiah. But we know that at eight years old, he was thrust into this place of power and that his family background was about as bad as you can imagine. Manasseh and Ammon, for 57 years prior to him coming, had led Judah down a path of wickedness and abandonment of God that was so desperately wicked. And here he is stepping into the midst of ruling this nation at eight. And by the grace of God, he takes a different path than his father and grandfather. By eight, it says that he was seeking God. He was pursuing the things of the Lord. Um, sorry, for the eighth year of his reign, so 16. The twelfth year of his reign, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the images and the altars, destroying them down to dust. And in the eighteenth year, uh, as he begins the restoration of the temple, uh, Hilkiah, the high priest, finds the book of the law of the Lord through Moses. The book of the law of the Lord of Moses, the Scripture, God's Word, had been neglected and lost over these years of abandoning God. And now they find the book and they bring it to Josiah and they read it before him. And you remember his reaction. He tore his clothes. He rent his clothes. And here's this young man who has a heart that is set on pursuing God. And now the Word of God for the first time is being read to him. I can't even fathom how he must have felt as the blessings of the law and the cursings of disobeying the covenant were read before him. He cried out to God. He said, For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out upon us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. God's message to Josiah through the prophetess Holda was that Josiah would lay down in his grave in peace. That he would not see the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem that would come, but that destruction was still going to happen. The nation did not have the same turning of heart that, you, that uh, Josiah had. Um, there's a debate about when in this time period exactly was Zephaniah giving his prophecy. We can't know anything for sure. We're not told specifically in Scripture. A lot of people argue that it was very early in the reign of Josiah because it speaks a lot of, about false prophets and, 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 and worshiping false gods. And so since the, they think that the reforms of Josiah haven't taken place yet when Zephaniah is giving his prophecy... There's others, and this is where I find myself leaning, uh, that this was given as they discovered the law. Because so much, uh, there is so much parallel between many of the things Zephaniah says in his prophecy with that of the book of Deuteronomy, later portions of Deuteronomy. We see it in there. 
And so I kind of lean towards that, uh, although we don't know exactly when during that time it was given. Then um, we see a change in world powers at the very end of Josiah's reign. Assyria falls to Babylon. The Assyrian capital of Nineveh is destroyed by Babylon. This is what Nahum is about, the prophecy of God that said that was going to take place near the ending of his reign. This marked the end of the Assyrian dominance and ushered in Babylon as the world's new superpower in 612 B.C. The fall of Nineveh, the death of Josiah in 609, the Babylonian victory over Egypt and Carchemish in 605, which can be read in Jeremiah 46 and 2, the powerful Babylonians now led by King Nebuchadnezzar were dominant and would almost immediately begin invasions of Judah. I know this, stay with me here. I know it's very, uh, can be heavy with the, the history. Uh, three invasions that we read about. Again, you can read about them in Scripture so that we don't have to guess. The first under Jehoiakim. And the Lord makes clear through his prophets that this was happening under his control. That God was never outside of control of these things, but that God was using Babylon as an instrument of judgment within his hands. And he says in 2 Kings 24, 3 and 4, Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did and also for the innocent blood that he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. It was during this initial siege that Daniel and his friends were taken captive and brought back to Babylon. The second siege came in 597 under Jehoiakim's son Jehoiakim. Nebuchadnezzar carried out treasures from Jerusalem, took thousands of captives. He took the skilled and the strong and the educated. And the Bible tells us that he only left the poorest sort of people. And so he took many from there. And then finally, the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem, the third invasion in 586 under King Zedekiah. This was Jehoiakim's uncle, so it would have been Josiah's son. And Zedekiah was on the throne, and uh, Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, the wall is torn down, everything is burned to the ground. Zedekiah is, is made to watch the killing of his own sons, his own lineage, was destroyed right before his eyes. They made him blind and brought him back to captivity. It was the final invasion that left Judah and Jerusalem in total ruin. All right, thank you for staying with me through that history. All right, I want to read the introduction now uh, as it's written. It says, Understanding what happened before, during, and after the reign of Josiah is essential to trying to wrap our hearts and minds around what Zephaniah's prophecy was all about. It will help us to make sense of this snapshot of history in these 53 verses within the wider context of what God is doing in redemptive history. God made crystal clear through his prophets that he was in control, that Babylon was his instrument of judgment, and that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21 and 1. That while those who lived in the time had such a limited scope of what was happening in the moment, they were called to seek the Lord. Seek righteousness and seek humility, Zephaniah 2.3. Called to trust in Him who is both sovereign Lord, that will come with strong hand and His arms shall rule for Him, and a gentle shepherd who shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arms and carry them in His bosom. Isaiah 40.10 and 11. The prophets spoke what thus saith the word of the Lord. And what we are blessed to be able to see in our age that was even clouded to the prophets themselves, was that in all of this unfolding of history, the rising and falling of nations, 
the victory and defeat in battles, the judgments and mercies of God. The Old Testament, listen now, the Old Testament tells a single, coherent story. It is a progressive revelation of God and of His purposes for the salvation of His people. It is a story ultimately about Jesus. Listen, I know we say that a lot, but as you begin to dig in and see all that God was doing throughout the Old Testament and redemptive history, it is a story about Jesus, our Savior. And it is beautiful. Jesus Himself helped the downtrodden and confused men on the road to Emmaus after His crucifixion to understand this very thing. And beginning at Moses, excuse me, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus took the Old Testament scriptures, the law of Moses and the prophets, and as they walked and they were confused about the crucifixion and what was going on, Christ began to open their hearts and minds to understand that the scriptures were speaking of that day. They were speaking of Jesus. Jesus also taught his disciples, saying, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. Luke 24, 44, and 45. My prayer for this study of the prophecy of Zephaniah is that Christ would do for us what he did for his disciples. Open our minds to understand the Scriptures. Open our minds to see him as Lord and Savior. Open our minds to see that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Zephaniah 3.17 A summary of the book, uh, quickly, it says, what, <clears throat> what you find when you read Zephaniah are elements that are common amongst nearly all prophetic books. Okay? So really the outline of almost all of the prophets has very similar elements to it, and Zephaniah is no different than that. First, the prophecy identifies specific ways in which God's people have broken the covenant with God. And I've listed several of those, and you can find them in Zephaniah. They worship of false gods, the mixing of pagan religion with true religion, openly, openly abandoning God, rendering God insincere, heartless allegiance, disobedient in those things which were external identifiers of God's people, violent in pursuit of self-gain, fraudulent in business, complacent, unconcerned. It says that they listened to no voice, accepted no correction, did not trust the Lord, and did not draw near to God. Talked about their political leaders and judges. They were like bloodthirsty predators. Religious leaders who were unstable, deceptive, and polluted that which God had set aside as sacred and holy. So that, too, the prophecy pronounces judgment, the judgment of God upon sin. And it does this in three different ways. First, and and really primarily, the most of Zephaniah is against Judah and Jerusalem specifically. So you see in the first chapter and the third chapter, the beginning of the third chapter, it is towards Judah and Jerusalem, specifically that covenant people of God. It also uh, has judgment against Judah's pagan neighbors in chapter 2, the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Cush, and Assyria. And thirdly, there is a universal judgment of all mankind. And we see this in the prophetic writing at the very beginning and the very end of of the judgment section, is a judgment that goes beyond the nations and really speaks to the entirety of the world. And we see that in the first chapter as well as the third. The prophecy calls on its listeners to seek the Lord before the judgment comes. The prophecy speaks a message of comfort to the faithful, promising that God will yet save them completely 
finally and graciously, or excuse me, gloriously. Um, and if you've not read the third chapter, of Ze- you need to read all of Zephaniah. But the end and the third chapter is one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture that describes what God will do when he saves his remnant completely, finally, and gloriously. It's beautiful. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those things. So let's talk about some main points. And we'll try to speed up. <clears throat> all right. Having said all those things, what are some things that we, we can draw from this? First of all, God's creative purpose and man's rebellion or the fall of man. The Genesis account of creation was the beginning of all things and the beginning of the relationship between those things as God designed them to be. When he made everything, uh, it was perfect and he loved it. He said that it was very good. Not only was his creation very good, but the relationships that he created between the things that he created was very good also. And he loved them and he reigned over them as Lord and King. Man had a unique relationship with God. He was created in God's own image, the special focus of his care and love, given dominion over the rest of the created world, and made the representative of the whole of creation. When man fell, sin entered, and those relationships as God created them to be were thrown into confusion. The relationship between man and God, the relationship between man and man, the relationship between man and the rest of creation. It was all thrown into confusion and not as God intended it or created it at the beginning. Sin messed all that up. Zephaniah 2.15 speaks of the heart of the Assyrian, and I think it really is a microcosm uh, of, <clears throat> of the heart of mankind in its fallen state. He said of the Assyrian heart, they said, I am and there is none beside me. Right? Or, The Assyrian's heart said, I am, and there is no one else. That was a judgment against them. Again, a microcosm of the heart of all mankind. The the rallying cry of Babel. When you look at the Tower of Babel and what took place there as they built that monument up as a symbol of their power and their independence from God. Thinking that, that we are in charge and that we make our own rules. And that all that we have and all that we have accomplished is the result of our own doing. We know the result of Babel was that God confused their languages. And those that had once been all together were then scattered throughout the world. They formed smaller units that only cared about their own uh, accomplishments at that point. Man has continually rejected the biblical doctrine of creation. Why? Because it flies right in the heart of the one who says, I am and there is no one else. Right? It says God is the I am. God is the I am, and everything we are and have is a gift from God. Totally dependent upon Him for everything. Every moment of our existence, every breath in our lungs, everything is on account of God that allows it and sustains it. It means we are uniquely responsible to God and must answer to Him for what we do. Whether man comes to this reality now in time and humbles himself to find mercy or waits till the coming day of the Lord, all will bow before him as Lord. Zephaniah 2.11 says, The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place 
all the lands of the nations. And that day he will be exalted and everyone will bow before his presence. Secondly, the cry of the prophet to the people is straightforward. Listen to this, this first one. Judah cannot as a nation go on enjoying the blessings of the covenant while it refuses the responsibilities of covenant life. Okay? They can't continue enjoying the blessings that are associated with the covenant that they have with God if they're going to reject the responsibilities of the covenant that they have. And that's exactly what they were doing. Now, with God's covenant, there is unconditional portions of it where God's people weren't going to uh, frustrate it. There was nothing that a man could do to thwart those purposes. They would stand and God would see them through. Those are the unconditional portions of it, and we'll talk about that later. But there were also conditional portions of His covenant that He made with Israel. And Moses' law in Deuteronomy, exactly what Josiah was hearing as the word of the law was read to him, it summarizes the blessings of following the covenant and the curses if they rejected the covenant and were disobedient to it. Josiah's response to hearing it as he saw the condition of his people, the consequences of walking contrary to God's commandments, and thinking about all the blessings of God that were being so carelessly forfeited because people were living for themselves. It is the often the nature of God's children to presume on the blessings of God while refusing the responsibility, responsibilities of being His representative people. The fallen, our fallen nature wants the benefits of things without the commitment to them. And that speaks to society as a whole, right? Think about marriage. Isn't that what our society wants? They want the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage, without the covenant of marriage, right? We want the intimacy that is, belongs to marriage, and we want the financial benefits, and we want the companionship, but we don't want to make the covenant. We don't want to make the vow. We don't want to go through with the responsibilities associated with it. Talk about church membership, same thing. How many people fill the pews of our church and want the benefits of the covenant people of God and the relationship that's shared within the local church? And yet, they don't want the responsibility of what comes with being a member of the Lord's church. We want the blessings, we presume upon them, and yet we can't expect the blessings of God if we're not going to live in the responsibilities that come with being His people. Sadly, we demand the blessings of God in our lives and families, and yet continue to live in disobedience and refuse the responsibilities that come with being God's chosen generation, His royal priesthood, His holy nation, His peculiar people. The prophet's message also is God is long-suffering and slow to anger. but his forbearance is limited. Let me read that again. God is long-suffering and slow to anger, but his forbearance is limited. Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3 says, Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nations not desired, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the shaft, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. You see the repetition of some of those words. What two words are repeated over and over again? Before, 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 before. And then seek, seek, seek. Seek. Repetition in the Bible is like a highlighter or an underline. And the prophet of the Lord cries to the people that before the wrath of God comes, seek Him now. You may be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. You may be hid in that day, protected from the wrath of God. 
but it's going to have to be before the day. <laughs> Seek him now. Skip down for, for the sake of time. Peter summarizes God's heart so beautifully when he reminds his readers. Actually, I'm not. I said, surely, uh, this is Zephaniah 3, 7, and 8. He says, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling could not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. <laughs> the Lord's message through his prophet is, surely you'll hear me. Surely you'll accept correction. Surely you will. Says, then you would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. God is slow to anger. He is long-suffering, merciful, and He's gracious. But there is a limit to His forbearance. Peter said, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He goes on to say, an account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. Salvation. That is why he waits. Uh, after the exodus, God gave Israel the law. He gave them a land. He gave them prophet after prophet. He gave them the tabernacle and the temple and would patiently and lovingly call them to return to him when they would wonder. The people continued to slide deeper into perverse sin and abandonment of God. In an earlier generation, God said to his nation Israel, uh, he said, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? <laughs> he says more than that, and you can read it, but the, the question uh, speaks for itself. God looks at Israel and he says, what more could I have done for you? What more could I have done for you that I have not already done? Listen. God speaks to our heart today and our generation and He says, what more can I do? He sent the best that heaven could give. He sent His Son. There is nothing greater. He sent Jesus. What, could I, what more could I have done that I have not done? God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. But Paul asked, Despisest thou the riches of the goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impotent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. God's wrath is arisen by one thing and one thing only. That's evil. And on the day of His judgment, on the day of the Lord and His wrath, His judgments will be righteous. Righteous. He will be exalted on that day. The day of the Lord. The prophecy of Zephaniah paints vivid word pictures of the wrath of God that will bring unfathomable devastation and destruction on the day of the Lord. But it also speaks of the gathering and restoration and ultimate salvation of a remnant of God's faithful people. The phrase, the day of the Lord which is the title of Brother Jeff's uh, lesson, uh, is used more in Zephaniah than any other book in the Bible, that phrase. Six times, and that's the most uh, that it's used. And it is the central theme of the book of Zephaniah, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, most simply put, means the coming of God, the coming of the Lord. Day speaks of an event in time rather than an extent of time, an event, an intrusion of God as He comes. The prophecies of this day are multi-layered. Some referred to this as a multi-fulfillment prophecy or a telescoping prophecy. Let me give you an analogy that was helpful to me. 
Uh, it might be helpful to me because I've climbed a mountain. I don't know how many people have climbed a mountain in here, but as you climb a mountain, one thing that you'll see is that depending on where you are in the mountain, you'll look up and you'll see a summit. You won't see anything behind it. You won't see anything higher than it. You'll see that summit. And so as you climb and you summit to the top of this peak, what you find out as you reach the top of that is that there's a higher and a more grander peak even yet to come out in the distance. But your vantage point hindered you from being able to see the greater or higher peak. And that's helpful when we're trying to understand the prophecies of the Old Testament. Because there are, there are peaks, depending on your vantage point of human history, that you see the fulfillment of the day of the Lord, and yet as you reach that fulfillment, there is still a greater consummation of this day in the future. Peter spoke of this very thing beautifully at the, uh, at the end of 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. When it testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The prophets themselves sought out with care the full meaning of the revelations made to them. (laughs) Peter's talking about that. He's saying their vantage point from history hindered them from seeing the full fulfillment of what God was even having them speak in their day. And it's they long to see what we are able to see from our vantage point of history. How amazing is that? That the prophets were envious of a day that we would be in and the angels were hanging from the rafters of heaven wanting to know what this redemption was that we would understand. What an amazing thing. (laughs) They themselves did not know the full understanding of what God was saying, but they knew that the full meaning Uh, would only be fully known in a distant age. The first peak. i got to get to the end of this one, so uh, we'll try to to find something to to pass up here. The first peak, uh, most of Zephaniah's prophecy is spent specifically to Judah and Jerusalem, God's covenant people. Uh, And what it is about, uh, clearly, as you read Jeremiah and Habakkuk, those were contemporary prophets of Zephaniah, was that God was using the nation of Babylon as an instrument of judgment against His people. And that is clearly prophesied in the book of Zephaniah. History records in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that that the devastation that took place under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and we read about that earlier, the king of Babylon. Throughout the biblical timeline, we see various instances where Yahweh intrudes into space and time to reconstitute right order through punishing wickedness. Okay, As you look through the biblical timeline and biblical history, there were times, there were days... Events within history where Yahweh would intervene in space and time, either directly or indirectly, to reconstitute right by punishing wickedness. All right? These were days of the Lord. These days of the Lord, uh, anger, were only a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord's punishment and salvation to come. A universal and complete destruction. As we read Zephaniah's prophecy and see the warning to the people and to the, the historical intrusion of the Lord's wrath, that would come by Babylon's destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, we also see elements within the prophecy that are clearly speaking of a taller peak yet to come. Right? So that destruction was clearly a peak or a fulfillment of this prophecy, but as you 
get to the summit of that peak, you realize that there's a greater peak yet to come in the fulfillment of what Zephaniah was saying. A day of the Lord that was further out in time. Zephaniah at times speaks not just of the judgment to come on Judah or its pagan neighbors, but speaks of a universal judgment of the whole world. Uh, we can uh, read about that in, the, in, in Zephaniah. Let's do that. Um, Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, or off the earth, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume fowls of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the land, saith the Lord. Therefore, and this is Zephaniah 3 and 8, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation, even all of my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And while there is specific uh, judgment against specific nations throughout there, these passages show us of a greater day of judgment yet to come on the whole earth. Upon first reading it, I said to myself, this hasn't happened yet. Right? As I thought about the Babylonian captivity and all that took place there, I said, these things haven't happened yet. What's going on here? He speaks of a universal destruction of all the earth, almost a reversing of the Genesis account as he lists things uh, in reverse order, man and beast and fowl and fish that he will wipe off the face of the earth. Certainly the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem was not the highest a purified remnant in the presence of the Lord. Um, what we see in the third chapter, and, and so beautifully, I, I want to read it, I, I can't get around it. We see almost a, at the beginning a reversal of the Babel account. When the languages were divided and the people were scattered in their pride and in their arrogance, we see a reversal of those things where God would bring them together and give them a pure language, it says. And that they would be in, the Lord would be in their midst and evil would be seen no more. Let's read in chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 10. For then will I turn, or verse 9, excuse me. Then will I turn to the people a, then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord, to serve him with one consent. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughters of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. In that day shalt thou be ashamed. Thou shalt not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For when I will take away out of the midst of thee from that rejoice of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee, is mighty, and he will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. It continues to go on, talking about those the poor and outcasts that he will bring to himself, reversing their shame. Uh, we're going to move on for time's sake, but what a beautiful prophecy that he gave. What's going on here? He's talking about a 
multi-ethnic community, okay? A multi, he's talking about pulling people from beyond the rivers and from different nations and gathering them together uh, in a a multi-ethnic community of worshipers no longer divided by nation or language, set apart from the proud and sinful and will call upon the name of the Lord in unison. He will take away his judgments from them. He will eradicate sin from their presence. He will overcome their enemies. The King of Israel, even the Lord, will be in their midst. He says in that day as people would not need to fear, for the Lord thy God will be in the midst of thee, in the midst of thee is mighty, he will save. He will rejoice over thee. Excuse me, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love, or he will quiet us in his love, and he will joy over thee with singing. Talking about the Lord finding joy in his people and singing over them. What a glorious thought of the joy joy of God over His gathered remnant. Surely Zephaniah must have inquired diligently, as Peter said, into what was the full extent of the things that he was prophesying. We read of the return of Babylon. As we read Ezra and Nehemiah, we saw at the end of 70 years, as God has prophesied, that He stirred in the heart of a pagan king named Cyrus to release people, to return to Jerusalem, to to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls. And what a beautiful thing that that is. One of my favorite portions of Scripture. And God really delivered them and, and brought a remnant back together to serve Him. And certainly that was a, a peak in this, this testimony of a remnant coming back together that God would not forsake them. It must have been a great comfort to the faithful in Jerusalem that despite the reality and imminence of the judgment that would come, God was not forsaking His people and was speaking of a plan of a future restoration Before judgment had even come, he was telling them that this this would take place. With that understanding, the reader of the prophecy is still left saying, surely this can't be the full fulfillment. The removing of sin from their presence, that God would be in their midst and sing over them with joy, their enemies would be completely removed, and all those things that we read. The coming of the King of Israel. Bear with me if you would. So, Zephaniah says in chapter 3, verse 14, Shout, O Israel. And in verse 15, speaks of the king of Israel that would be in their midst. Up until this point of the prophecy, the name Israel is not used. He talks to Judah and Jerusalem and other nations, but it was not until this portion of Scripture where he talks about the remnant of his people and what he would do that he uses Israel and speaks of the king of Israel. Israel was the name of the United Kingdom under David and Solomon. We know the ten tribes to the north, Israel, the two tribes to the south, Judah. Israel, at this point of the prophecy, had ceased to exist. Assyria had taken them over. They were no longer. Israel was wiped off. And Judah only existed. And after God would bring judgment, we would see that Judah was wiped out too. So Zedekiah was king during the Babylonian captivity. During that last destruction of Jerusalem and the taking of the people and the breaking of the walls and all those things, Zedekiah was king. And we read in 2 Kings, and we'll paraphrase this, but when they took him, Nebuchadnezzar held him and made him watch as his sons were killed before his eyes. Then he blinded him and took him. Now I can't tell exactly what's going through Nebuchadnezzar's head, but I can tell you this that God had made a covenant with His people. He had made a covenant with David that His kingdom would be established forever. That through His lineage, through His line, there would be a king that reigned forever. 
2 Samuel chapter 7. Go and read it. And the Jewish people understood this, and they knew that God had made that promise. And here was the last king of Judah, Zedekiah. And he is watched as his sons are killed right before his eyes, right? His lineage, his sons that would have reigned in his stead. It's almost as if Nebuchadnezzar knew the promise of God, that he knew the covenant, and in his evil, wicked heart was trying to stop the unconditional promises of God. He was was trying to stop it. And for the whole second half of the Old Testament, it is God's people wailing and asking, has God's promises failed? Right? There is no longer a son of David on the throne. What's happening, God? You promised that you would establish His kingdom forever. And they wait with anticipation. And the prophets say, God's promises haven't failed. And they continued to point forward to a day when a king would come. It was 400 years from David, over 400 years from David to Zedekiah that there had been a king in the line of David upon the throne. And here Zedekiah is wiped out and the people are asking, what's happening? And you open your Bibles to Matthew 1.1. And it says, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David. <laughs> the son of Abraham. I was reading an article on a website. I, I didn't even check the source. Should have done that, but it was called "The Last King of Israel." It was about Zedekiah, and I was reading through it. It was the, the history was right, just as the biblical narrative was, and I was enjoying it. And it came down to the end. And it said, and, "And and and now we wait. We wait for someone of the line of David to reclaim the throne of Israel." And I looked up, and I, it was a, it was a website of a, of a Jewish person. And my heart just broke. And I wanted to find the man and say, hey, the king's come! You don't have to wait anymore! The king of Israel has come! (laughs) And they wait to this day for the promised Messiah, the son of David, to once again reign in Israel. And they wait with anticipation. And I just want the world to know and I want the Jewish people to know that the Messiah has come! The son of David, the son of Abraham. God would not allow His people to frustrate His unconditional promises. The Messiah came. Then we fast forward to the triumphal entry. And we see the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that the, the king would come riding upon a donkey right into Jerusalem. We read John 12, 13-15. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, the king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. Here Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He is riding in to the city of the Jews and the place of the kingdom. And they saw in that day that he was the king of Israel. He was... There, those words should jump to our minds. The prophecy of Zephaniah where he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away the judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy, the King of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. (laughs) What we have in the coming of the King of Israel, Jesus Christ, was another peak in the prophecy of the day of the Lord. A day of great and unfathomable judgment as well as a day of indescribable salvation. 
as they nailed the king of the Jews to the cross, what would come thereafter was the judgment of God's wrath. Far more severe than anything described in the prophecy of Zephaniah. God would pour out His indignation and all of His burning anger against sin. But it would be once for all. It would not be on Babylon. It would not be on Assyria. It would not be on Judah. It would be on His sinless Son. And all the vivid word pictures that Zephaniah paints of the destruction and the wrath of God and His burning indignation. Listen, that doesn't come close even to describing the wrath of God that was poured out on Christ on our behalf. His sinless Son came sin that knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. (laughs) Over time, bear with me if you would. He fulfilled the promises of the Old Covenant and established a new covenant, a better covenant. In the Old Covenant, Israel was separated from the nations, a distinct national and theocratic entity. But in the New Covenant, the people of God, the restored Israel under one king, is made up of both Jew and Gentile. Christ broke down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. The true Israel, the true sons of Abraham were those that were circumcised of the heart, those that were born again in trusting Jesus Christ. And we began to see the fuller picture of what was spoken of earlier. God's plan to restore all those relationships in Eden back to what He intended them to be. (laughs) Through faith in Jesus Christ, all mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, can be justified, reconciled to God, welcomed into His kingdom, and adopted as His children. Consummation of the day of the Lord. And I'm going to read it and be done. Appreciate your patience. And yet... Our regenerated spirits still war with our flesh. Men fight with men. Nations rise up against nations. Persecution of God's faithful continue on. And we still disappoint our Heavenly Father daily. We realize that there is a consummation of the day of the Lord still to come. Where all the promises of Zephaniah and the prophets are fully realized. Peter speaks of that day and the ultimate destruction of the heavens and earth. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. 2 Peter 3.10 John the Revelator saw a vision of the restoration work of the Lord in the new creation on the day of the Lord. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Bless, uh, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. And they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be with them. And be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And He said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, and unbelieving, and the abominable, and the murderers, and the whoremongers, and the sorcerers, and the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone 
which is the second death. Oh, that man would heed the call of God through Zephaniah the prophet. Before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you, seek ye the Lord. And believer, child of God, do not presume upon the blessings of God, but serve Him in faithfulness. And no matter how dark these days may get, remember, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. On that day, that terrible and glorious day, He will rejoice over thee with joy. (laughs) He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with singing. God bless.